Welcome back to Horror Origins. My name is Matthew Tanzik, and over the course of this podcast, we're going to be delving into horror firsts, dissecting their genesis and learning a bit more about the history of the cultural world that has sprung up around us. This is episode 12, and we're going to be taking a look at the first story to utilize science as a ward and weapon against the malevolent supernatural forces. We answer the question, who was the first Ghostbuster? Or at least that's the question I was working with when I was, uh, I was researching this episode. The author is William Hope Hodgson, and the story is The Gateway of the Monster. But before we get into things, let's break things down. Um, first, we're going to be taking a look at the author that created the idea, uh, the climate that the concept was born into, the story that introduced it, and then finally, the legacy it had it's had since its inception. And let me just say, it's good to be back. We were uh, on a bit of a hiatus there. Um, I wasn't sure if the show was going to continue. I've had a surprising amount of support. Um, I got a, quite a few messages of people asking about the show. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'm excited to do more. I enjoy this stuff. And uh, I enjoy sharing this stuff with you. So... Thanks for listening, and we're going to forge forward. I've got 12 more awesome horror firsts in store for this year, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to, to get those out there to you. Hope Hodgson was an English author, um, and he wrote all kinds of notable works in horror, fantasy, and science fiction in his 40 years of life. He was born in 1877, and he died in World War I in the year 1918. And unlike many of the bookish authors we've covered on this podcast, old Willie H. was renowned as a bodybuilder and as fitness for the time. He definitely does not fit the mold of the usual weird fiction horror author. He was the son of a pastor, a guy named Samuel Hodgson, and he was one of 12 effing children, which is way too many children. God. Uh, his biography states that when he was 13, he ran away um, and was caught trying to become a sailor. But... Shortly thereafter, his father gave him permission for him to be an apprentice, uh, I guess a sort of cabin boy, and uh, it began his career at sea. <laughs> it also states that his father died shortly thereafter, leaving his impoverished family like without any sort of income, and they survived mostly on charity after his death. Well, no duh, you had 12 kids and apparently no life insurance, and even after you pawned one off to the to the uh, the Navy, you, I mean, everything I read about uh, William H. Hodgson's father, he just seems like a complete jackass. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so William continued along the sailor track for many years. He practiced bodybuilding for self-defense and honed his photography skills, taking all sorts of pictures of sea phenomena. 
And um, despite my trying to find them, I was never able to find any of Hodgson's um, nautical photography. So if there's a collection somewhere or if that's been digitized online and you know about it, please comment on the show or tweet it at me so we can see it. Um, but for the life of me, I could not find where those would be. Anyway, I, I've read a lot of Hodgson's work over the years, and his stuff always has a nautical setting. He has great and masterful use of the terminology at the time, and he knows how boats were, you know, interacted on open water, and you can definitely feel that in the writing. He does a lot of ghost ship type stories, um, and they're fantastic. In um, November of 1898, he was awarded the Royal Humane Society Medal of Heroism for saving another sailor who at that uh, had fallen off the top mast into shark-infested waters off the coast of New Zealand. So if that doesn't give you a better example of, uh, of Hodgson, I don't know what does. He's this sort of burly sailor hero guy um, uh, for at least a big chunk of his early life. When he finally stopped his sailing career, he then opened his own personal training school in Blackburn, England, and had many, all sorts of students. Even the local police force were known to be students of his. And uh, he, he even had a run-in with Harry Houdini as this capacity as being sort of this fitness guy. Um, apparently, he was the guy selected to go up on stage and place Houdini in handcuffs and restraints to make sure they were real. And uh, Houdini apparently had quite some difficulty escaping from the handcuffs and claimed afterward that Hodgson had injured him and deliberately jammed the locks on the cuffs. I don't know if that's true. It'd be kind of a dick move if that was true. But um, I, I read that the uh, Houdini had come through the previous year and escaped from the Blackburn jail. And so maybe the cops wanted to show him up a little bit. And Houdini, I guess, was you know good friends with the cops. So I'm not saying he did it, but it, I wouldn't put it past him. Anyway, um, after a while, his fitness business ultimately failed. And even after the success of a couple of his novels and he sold those off, he was a pretty poor guy. Um, so this is when he really launched into writing these serialized short stories as a way of supplementing his income or getting any kind of income, as far as I can tell. Um, Thomas Carnacki, who's the character of the story, was born out of this, this need and his wanting to serialize a short story series. And The Gateway of the Monster first appeared in the Idler magazine in 1910. He, uh, let's see, he married um, in 1912, uh, after he was writing for a couple of years, to a fellow writer. Her name was Betty Farnworth. And uh, they were married in their mid-30s, which I got to believe is pretty rare at the time um, for, for 1912. So then we launch into the tragic end to his life. Um, war broke out in Europe, and maybe it was his loyalty to his country, and maybe it was a bit of a midlife crisis and wanting to relive his old glory days, but William joined up and was assigned to the Royal Artillery. Uh, and not long after... He was thrown from a horse, which I read that and thought, why would you put the horses next to the artillery? But I'm sure it wasn't like that. Um, he suffered a broken jaw and a serious head injury from the fall. Um, but he toughed it out. He was this sort of 
macho fitness dude, and he wasn't going to let that knock him down. So he re-enlisted after he, uh, you know, healed up, and was sent to the Battle of um, Yip- Yipris in 1918. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong Y-P-R-E-S uh Wipers anyway it was here that he met his end um something even the toughest nails Hodgson couldn't recover from which was a direct impact of an artillery shell he literally exploded I mean the guy was only 40 it's really quite sad and you know on one hand you know his, his life was cut short and selfishly, I would have loved to read more of his creative works. I mean, I feel like that's the real tragedy here. I mean, he might have thought that his life was better spent fighting for his country, but I mean, he was already, you know, old enough to not have been drafted, not have been sucked into the war unless he did it voluntarily. So, I mean, this is how he chose to go out. And I think it's kind of a shame just because I want to read more of his works. I'm selfish like that. Uh, but, you know, we didn't get to see how his stuff would have matured as he, as he went into old age. All we have is what we have, and uh, so let's let's get into it. I will say, you know, let's take a look at the climate of the world. Obviously, you know, we're, we're building up to World War One, but, um, you know, occult detectives, which is what the story is, we covered that, uh, you might be interested to learn, in episode one of Horror Origins. And Thomas Carnacki, as the character... You know, close follows closely in the footsteps of his predecessors, and was most likely a product of inspiration from the character Doctor Hesalius, which of course is uh, a character in um, Car- Carmilla, which is might be the first female vampire story, and something we might cover on the show in the future. But you know, what else was going on in in the world that can give us a picture of the times that he was writing in? Let's see, uh, June second um, of that year. Charles Rolls becomes the first man to make a non-stop double crossing of the English Channel by plane, including the first eastbound flight. He's also the first British resident to make the crossing on a British-built plane. That's certainly something that might have been sort of national pride for the time. Uh, the 15th of June, uh, Terra Nova expedition. Robert Falcon Scott's ship, the Terra Nova, set sail from Cardiff on an expedition with the purpose of undertaking scientific research and exploration along the coast and interior of Antarctica. That's certainly something that was in the minds of people at the time. There's some fantastic Arctic uh, weird fiction that's out there. Certainly the the Thing springs to mind, or the Mountains of Madness from Lovecraft springs to mind. But there's a ton, and there and uh, I don't know if if people's obsession with Egypt, you know, was this Egyptomania type thing. I feel like there was certainly at this time kind of a an Arctic mania that was going on where people were just um, fascinated with this alien, harsh landscape that, that you know, sort of had not been explored before. <laughs> I, I, I want to circle back to Charles Rolls, the, the guy who flew across um, on the British airplane across the, the channel and stuff. He becomes the first British aviation fatality when... Uh, his airplane suffers a broken rudder and crashes. Um, so in the same year, he was like both famous for crossing the channel and famous for crashing his plane. So shout out to Charles Rolls because that's just ridiculous. Uh, to the double firsts. Um, 
Uh, let's see. Additionally, you may have you have many of the pulps churning out uh, reoccurring characters, realizing it's more profitable to get readers hooked on a particular character and not just famous for one particular story. Reader uh, writers go up out of their way to produce um, just sort of familiar and colorful characters that reoccur throughout the pulps. So, you know, I think this gives us um, evidence of you know the the build up the tension of World War One. You've got science conquering the natural world and pushing the frontiers that face humanity, and uh, and yeah, and and national pride and and aviation being a, a, a thing too. Aeronauts were was a thing too, where people are exploring the skies in new ways and what could be up there. I know there's a fantastic story by um, Conan Doyle. I think it's called The Aeronaut, where he finds strange monsters and stuff in the sky. That might be one for a future episode too, but uh, uh, definitely worth checking out. But uh, enough of all that. Let's get into the story itself. The story sets out to do a couple of things. First, uh, since it's Hodgson's new character, and he wants to serialize this, uh, like many of the writers, like I just said, he wants to do a bit of world building and establish a narrative framework. So the comfortable setting, which we are sort of eased into the story through and seen through the eyes of the narrator, we are invited into the main character, who's Thomas Karnacki, his home. There's a roaring fire. We've just had a big meal. You know, we're in the lounge drinking, you know, dark alcohol and smoking cigars. And this is where Thomas Karnacki is going to regale us with his um, latest exploits in, in his adventures. He is uh, known as the Ghost Finder, uh, and so we know this going into it. So these stories that he presents us, we're all excited to hear his latest ghost story. Uh, it's a fun, old-fashioned setting, um, and one that's reused to good, to, to good effect uh, many times throughout the six upcoming Karnacki stories. And yeah, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a fun, albeit a little cheesy uh, intro to the story. And rather than do a blow by blow of the story itself here, uh, I'm just going to give you my impressions and let you, if you're so inclined, uh, to read it for yourself. And I'll provide links uh, in the show notes where you can most easily find the text, uh, both in print and digital formats, if I can. After we get through the initial setting, Karnacki launches into his story. It seems. At the outset, to be a typical haunted house story, albeit with a cool name um, for the spot in the house where the supernatural occurrences take place, it's called the Gray Room. And at no point do they describe anything in the room being gray, but I think it just sounds cool uh, as sort of the the haunted spot within the mansion. Um, It's here in the house that Karnacki meets the other main character of the story, Peter the butler, and, and that's it. There are really only two people throughout this entire story. Um, and there's only two people in this huge haunted house. Uh, I'm, I'm unaware of any cinematic versions of the story. But I think it would be appealing that there's only two characters. It really is like one setting. Yeah, I think it would be on a budget you could do this uh, pretty well. Um, but like I said, I don't know of any that have been ever produced. Uh, if I'm wrong... Please comment or let me know. Um, I think that'd be kind of fun to check out. Anyway, there are some cool scenes where Karnacki employs a bit of hard-boiled detective ingenuity, right? He rigs doors with the rooms with special tape, which in the story is called Baby Ribbon. And I presume it's some sort of very thin, short tape. Um, 
I don't know. I didn't actually look up what baby ribbon exactly was at the time. Um, but he does this across the doorways and stuff so that if the door opens, the tape is broken. And he's then he knows that the door was tampered with since the last time he touched it. As he's going through and doing his detective thing, he, he comes with a cup, up to a pretty couple of pretty scary scenes. Um, Karnacki is not a coward, but he certainly is not impervious to fear. So I'll read one of those story sections here for you because I think it really sets the tone and it's a fun listen. I returned to my room, locked the door, and went to bed. I was waked suddenly from a deep sleep by a loud crash somewhere out in the passage. I sat up in bed and listened, but heard nothing. Then I lit my candle. I was in the very act of lighting it when there came a bang of the door being violently slammed. Along the corridor, I jumped out of bed and got my revolver. I unlocked the door and went out into the passage, holding my candle high and keeping the pistol ready. Then a queer thing happened. I could not go a step toward the gray room. Now, you all know I am not really a cowardly chap. I've gone into too many cases connected with ghostly things to be accused of that. But I can tell you I funked it. I simply funked it, just like any blessed kid. There was something precious unholy in the air that night. I ran back to my bedroom and shut the door and locked it. Then I sat on the bed all night and listened to that dismal thudding of the door up the corridor. The sound seemed to echo through all the house. My favorite is funked it. Uh, funked it. F-U-N-K-E-D. Um, there's a word whose meaning has not, yeah, is not the same at all. <laughs> it's uh, and that sometimes the vernacular of these old stories is just a lot of fun. Uh, it's great stuff. Um, when we're nearing the climax of the story, Karnacki starts busting out his tech. And this is where it really sort of struck me as one of the, one of, one of, or the first story that ever really puts technology against the supernatural. His most famous device is known as the electric pentacle, and it's a pentagram shape that he makes on the floor with each of the points of the star, a vacuum tube, and, uh, well, I'll just read the description, and you'll you'll quickly realize that while it does have certainly occult um, symbiology and uh, overtones, it's a technical device. It's, it's a machine, and it's the machine mechanisms that's really doing the, the process. Uh, here you go. I came across Professor Gardner's experiments with a medium. When they surrounded the medium with a current in a vacuum, he lost his power, almost as if it had cut him off from the immaterial. That made me think a lot, and that is how I came up to make the electric pentacle which is a most marvelous defense against certain manifestations. I use the shape of the defensive star for this protection, because I have personally no doubt at all that there is some extraordinary virtue in the old magic figure. Curious thing for a 20th century man to admit, is it not? But then, as you all know, I never did, and never will allow myself to be blinded by the little cheap laughter. I ask questions, and I keep my eyes open. In this last case, I had little doubt that I had run up against a supernatural monster, and I meant to take every possible care, for the danger is abominable. I turned to 
now fit the electric pentacle, setting it so that each of its points and veils coincided exactly with the points and veils of the drawn pentagram upon the floor. Then, I connected up the battery, and the next instant the pale blue glare from the intertwining vacuum tubes shone out. I glanced about me then, with something of a sigh of relief, and realized suddenly that the dusk was upon me, for the window was gray and unfriendly. Then, round the big empty room, over the double barrier of electric and candlelight, I had abrupt, extraordinary sense of weirdness thrust upon me. In the air, you know, as it were, a sense of something inhuman, impending. The room was full of a stench of bruised garlic, a smell I hate. I turned now to the camera and saw that in the flashlight, he, it, and the flashlight were in order. Then I tested my revolver, carefully, though I had little thought that it would be needed. Yet, to what extent, extent materialization of an ab-natural creature is possible? Given favorable conditions, no one can say, and I had no idea what a horrible thing I was about to see or feel the presence of that night. So yeah, well, Karnacki being um, sort of the stiff upper lip, uh, you know, Ed- Edwardian guy, um, or Victorian guy, he's uh, he does, at a couple points, like I said, show total fear. Uh, he's unable to even approach the gray room at first, and I think in no less than three occasions in the story, he flees back uh, during the night to his room and hides under the covers until morning. Like, he just can't do it. He leaves. Nope. He's out of there. I think it shows that even the ghost finder himself isn't infallible. And moreover, as as the narrator is, is... As a narrator, I think showing us this genuine fear in him is more relatable. And it makes it feel more real that these events are taking place, right? So we're hearing this story from Karnacki in that, you know, posh lounge where we're drinking alcohol and smoking cigars, right? And he could tell us any version of the story he wants to. It's it's him retelling an account of what he did. So he could say that, you know, he just punched the thing in his fa- in the face and, and won the day. But uh, he's not. He's accurate. He's actually saying, you know, he was afraid. He flees back to the room. He can't take it. It makes it feel more like a genuine account. You know, I think it's it's bad when characters are totally fearless, when they, they don't show any kind of break in the facade. Um, it's not something that is a deal breaker. If you look at characters like Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, I mean, Sherlock Holmes really rarely ever breaks rarely is ever afraid he's sort of like the perfect detective right and so you can get away with it but i think that uh i think that hodgson did the right thing uh, in not going that that course with here good weird fiction really is at its strongest when you don't see the monster when things are unknown when you let the reader fill in the blanks paint the picture of the horror in their own minds so that it it is tailored to their personal horror. When you reveal the monster, well, then it's something you can fight. It's something you can shoot, you can blow up. It's an adversary. It's not this nebulous force. So it's here where Hodgson stumbles when he reveals the monster. And it's this that I think is the biggest criticism I have for the story. Um, Karnacki, after spending a night 
uh, in the electric pentacle comes face to face with the entity that's haunting the gray room, right? And here it is. It's an ethereal, gigantic hand, right? It's a, it's a severed, floating, giant hand, which, of course, made instantly think of the master hand from Super Smash Brothers. Um, it did not strike me with fear. Uh, I wondered if it were wearing like a big cartoony glove or or what? Um, there's it's a giant hand, and it's not explained why it's there. There's a, a pretty hastily thrown at you exposition about some sort of cursed ring that seemed to summon the thing. But like many, I was left asking a bunch of silly questions um, about why there's this ghostly hand in this house. And I'll just go through them here because it's... I just... I have to. One, is the hand some sort of, like, hand of a giant? Why is it giant? And why wouldn't the whole giant be there, not in just the hand? Two, does the hand haunt the ring? Is the last hand that wore the ring? If so, why is the hand huge? Because it's too big to wear the ring now. It's like six... It's like the size of a person. It, It can't wear the ring. Three... Why does it slam the door all the time? Were its fingers slammed in the door in life? It seems to have some sort of sentience, but it does idiotic, haunting antics, like slamming doors and thumping on things for no reason. Four, Karnaki brings in a cat to see how it interacts with living things. And it mangles the cat. Brutally. Twice. It really is one of the scariest things that the hand does, but why? Cats can't wear rings and are not part of the family or the house, so why does the hand beat the kill the cat by beating against the ceiling? I don't I don't get it. Five. How can the hand see without eyes? It's just a hand. I guess we can assume ghostly uh, omniscience or something. But if it can't cross the barrier of the pentacle, why does it start throwing things? How does it know where to throw things? Like if it's smart enough to know what's going on, it doesn't act like it's smart enough to know what's going on all the time. It's just a weird thing. If you have problems with the story or have other questions about the giant hand, I encourage you to, to share them because I just feel like it, it just begs so many questions that are, that are never given to you. No, no answers are ever given to you. Anyway, um, after a couple of more nights and a couple more trips to the hardware store... Karnaki is able to get the stuff he needs to destroy the gateway of the monster and stop the haunting of the Grey Room. I won't tell you exactly how he does it, but, um, you know, because I don't want to spoil the whole story for you. It's, it's sort of the climax of the story, but needless to say, he gets the job done. There's a short round of questioning by the narrator and the other audience members uh, at the end as they sit dumbfounded around the fire, drinking their drinks and uh, tamping out their cigars, and then the story ends. Um, when I first read the story, like most people, I thought that it suffered ultimately from a ridiculous concept. I mean, it succeeds at creating a charming atmosphere and at introducing a clever character, but it fails to deliver, to deliver on the antagonist. The other Karnaki stories, I gotta say, are, are just the same. Their hauntings are born out of the same ridiculous, quasi-silly place that this one is. Uh, so at the end of the day, 
I, I got to figure that Hodgson must have purposefully done this as a creative choice. And even if it leaves his readers a little bit bewildered, it must have been the story that he wanted to write. So there, there it is. But, you know, to play devil's advocate, in its defense, take a look at something like the Ghostbusters. No one's really ever thinking that Slimer is the embodiment of a dead person. All right, the writer gets away with calling them ghosts, but they really um, get a pass, and and we just think of them as glowing monsters, right? With the Karnacki stories, I I want to give him a pass in the same reason, right? He's called the Ghost Finder, but the world that Hodgson creates is one that's a lot more, you know, gives a lot more leeway to what we might call a ghost, right? So in Ghostbusters, they're just glowing monsters, and in this. Well, you know, maybe you'll be okay with there being a giant hand um, or, you know, whatever else exists in the other six Karnacki stories. I can tell you there's some other ridiculous things. They're a lot of fun and uh, and they're really unlike anything else out there. Certainly at the time, they would have been wholly unique. You know, the character concept is, is used, but not in such a weird, uh, weird way. The reception of the work, well, unlike some of Hodgson's work, the Karnacki stories remain very accessible to a modern audience. A.F. Kidd and Rick Kennett, in their introduction to number 472, Shane Walk, uh, Karnacki uh, say that uh, the Karnacki stories pose the question, what is it about Thomas Karnacki that fascinates so many people? And according to Kidd and Kennett, the series Enduring Attraction comes from more of Hodgson's capacity for world building than any special appeal of Karnacki himself. I agree with this. Karnacki is, you know, is an imperfect, but kind of an impersonal character. He doesn't really share much about his life or himself. And so you're left with enjoying the atmosphere, enjoying his, you know, his cleverness in getting things done, but not really the character himself. I think that there definitely are elements of horror and certainly weirdness in these texts. Um, But what... I find most appealing about them is, is like I said, the cleverness of Karnacki um, and the, if you can get around, if you can get over it, the over the top antagonists are actually kind of fun, if, even if they're not terrifying. You lay on top of that, the whole array of early 1900s tech that Karnacki employs to fight against the supernatural, and you've got a fun mix. Um, Karnacki is definitely one that uses latest scientific knowledge, it's the stuff that would have been really cutting edge at the time to use them to fight the supernatural. And he does it in occult kind of ways. It's not exactly strictly science. Like It's not like, um, you know, some sort of mythbustery type type situation. Uh, but uh, it's it's a good starting point, and I think it's a lot of fun to see him bust out the, the electric pentacle and the other apparatus and go after these things. Among his critics, and although a, a, health, a self-proclaimed fan of Hodgson's work, uh, of course, is the uh, infamous H.P. Lovecraft. Um, he considered Karnacki, the ghost finder, quote, vastly inferior to his earlier novels, calling it, quote, his poorest work, and Karnacki himself very weak and artificial and stereotyped. Surely a mediocre echo of John Silence. Oof. I mean, that's that's pretty scathing from Lovecraft. He's saying it's a He's a crappy character compared to other characters, and it's some of um, Hodgson's weakest stuff. 
I I think Lovecraft as a writer was someone that was all about atmosphere and descriptions and setting a mood. And Karnacki stories are a little more plot-driven and easy to read. And so, yeah, I'm not surprised that old HPL was not a fan. There's few things that he actually is a fan of. Um, if you read his, you know, his essay, Supernatural Horror and Literature, he he bashes a lot of people. He does a lot of sideways, you know, compliments. And so this is sort of par for the course for him, I, I feel like. And it's kind of fun that Lovecraft even had a comment about it. That's pretty neat, too. So what's the legacy of the concept? Well, there's a big list of detective stories, um, occult detective stories that have occurred after this. Karnacki certainly wasn't the originator of that concept, but you also have a lot of use of technology as the alternative and best way to fight the supernatural. So if you can't beat it with, with magic, like if the werewolf can't die by silver bullets in your story, then, you know, technology fills the next role. Then you, then you hit it with modern weaponry and you hit it with, you know, alternative ways of figuring out what's going on with it. Is it a, a disease? You know, is, is, is it a, is something else? Can you, it, you know, become immune to it some way? Can you trap it behind certain, you know, elements? I think it really opens the door for a lot of science versus the occult type stuff. And that is a, a genre of, of stories and media that has just continues on and on. So for sure that this has a strong legacy. If you enjoy this podcast and learning about the strange works of horror that have brought us to where we are today, I implore you, take a moment and rate or review the show. It'll help more people find out about it, and the more people we can get interested in this stuff, the better. And if you like, uh, if you appreciate podcasts that are advertisement-free and you want to say thanks, or if you want to uh, make a recommendation for the show, feel free to email me at author at matthewtancic.com or click on the contact button on matthewtancic.com. Links for those things will also be in the show notes, so you don't have to worry about spelling or anything like that. And, uh, and lastly, if you want to stay up to speed on this or any of my other creative projects, uh, I tweet. Um, I'm on Twitter at tans444. That's T-A-N-Z 444. Feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, thanks for joining me.